Hey y'all, it's Tuesday and we have a great show planned for you. We really do. The iconic Loretta Devine is here and then I sit down with pop star Allie Brooke. And we really just want to turn the show into a tribute to Lil Nas X, let's be honest. That's so, the whole point. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see you on the timeline. <laughs> Yeehaw, Twitter. Yeehaw. <laughs> I'm Zach Savard. She's Alex Berg. We are Cowboys, and you are watching AM to DM. Well, Cowboys today. You know, today. Because today is a very fantastic day. It us. is a very fantastic it's day. It's a fantastic day for two reasons. One, it's Tuesday, which everyone knows is my, my best day. It's where my powers are fully you know, charged. My hangover from Sunday is fully gone. I have gone to CrossFit. I have SoulCycled. I've done all the things. You better watch out. Shade because I hate Tuesdays. Oh, Tuesdays are So I, this is, I feel attacked. I know. You hate I it because it's the longest day from the weekend. But... It's also amazing because, you know, yeehaw culture is really winning. Here's a tweet from CNN. Lil Nas X has now made Billboard chart history with Old Town Road featuring Billy Ray Cyrus. The song has landed on the top of the Billboard Hot 100 for the 17th consecutive week, making it the longest running number one single since the chart's inception. And here's a tweet from Mariah Carey sending love and congratulations to Lil Nas X on breaking one of the longest running records in music history. We've been blessed to hold this record with a song that means a great deal to boys to men and myself and has touched so many. Keep living your best life and to which we say, we are now a Lil Nas X tribute show. <laughs> Just These hats. weird, they're part of my skull, they're never going away. But also I must say, black queens supporting black queens there. Miss Mariah Carey coming up yeah. with Lil Nas X, Literally tweeting a meme of her passing a trophy. I just, uh, I did not even see that coming. And people always think Mariah's super petty. No, no, no. Our queen, she gives us. She does she, take it. She recognized she greatness. Us. She yes. recognized greatness. But there is a person that I'm questioning if they do recognize greatness. And I'm going to give you a hint of who that person is. I'm going to go... Would that be... Would that be Taylor's... Miss, yes. Swift. Miss Taylor Swift. So, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with Miss Taylor Swift. And this is not me to tear her down or anything to that effect. But, you know, Taylor Swift did something last week that I just caught wind of today, and that was she released a song of her forthcoming album, which, congratulations, girl, you're doing great with that. But she released a new song on Tuesday, which is when we found out that Lil Nas X had tied for this record and was potentially going to win. Usually, I would not feel a type of way about this, but I feel a type of way about this because this is her second time doing something like this. Despacito, the other song to tie Mariah Carey's record and never break through it, is what happened a few years ago when she released um, what, Look What You Made Me Do. I had to look at my notes for that. Look What You Made Me Do. And that knocked it out of first place and ruined that song, mm -hmm. which is a Latinx song, you know, an amazing little club hit, mm -hmm. really fun time, was annoying back then, do miss it though. Um, and she blocked that from going to number one. So I just have to think, Taylor, when you heard that Lil Nas X was about to break this record as a kind of unknown black queer artist, you have this year come out in support of queer people in a big way, why didn't you think, maybe I should wait a week, just a week? And the song wasn't supposed to be like a club banger. This was not the, the single from her, from her new album. It was just a part of this, the, the scheduled release. But I still gotta think, Taylor Swift, you are so powerful. You knew where your power does go, and sometimes these songs take off and you have no idea, but you took a chance. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just like, you have so much <laughs> money and power, you have so many hits and accomplishments. Just let Lil Nas X have this one yeah. thing for once. He must be protected at all costs. At all costs. All costs. So, Let's take it to the timeline. Is Taylor Swift's power no match for the black, queer incredibleness of Lil Nas X? Let us know using the hashtag AM2. It's no match. It's no okay? match. And that's yeah. what we love about this. Even though she tried or didn't mean to try, he still won. So congratulations, Lil Nas X. And you can watch us on stage with Lil Nas X on Sunday, August 4th. 
for Internet Live. Well, moving on from today, and but Moving goodbye. on to some other Goodbye, news. Pat. Here's a tweet from David Gels. On the CNN debate stage tonight at 8 p.m. live from Detroit, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, John Hickenlooper, Steve Bullock, Marianne Williamson. Mm, and here's a tweet from Al Weaver. Wait, the Bachelorette finale is the same night as the first Democratic debate in Detroit? Come on, you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny to me because I don't watch the show, but I know Twitter cares. Twitter cares. Well, here to give us a preview of what to expect is BuzzFeed News reporter Darren Sands, who joins us from the phone from Detroit. Good morning, Darren. Morning, guys. How are you? We're doing great. great. How are you out there? Good. It's, uh, Detroit is, you know, popping. Um, I know the downtown area is like getting um, a, a real rejuvenation. There's lots of economic new energy here. Um, but the sort of typical of how these things work, it's not reached sort of the outside communities, but it's interesting to, to be around and be talking to people in the city. Yes, and this debate is a very interesting place to be having it with a lot of the themes in the, in the news this week. So let's just jump right on in. The Detroit Free Press says that Michigan is a make-or-break state for candidates. What is at stake for them tonight in Detroit? Well, a lot. Um, you know, in the 2016 Democratic primary, um, Bernie won Michigan um, by a, a pretty comfortable margin. Um over Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton went on to obviously win the nomination, but lose this state. And in this state in particular, there are a, a great deal amount of, of of voters who voted for Obama in twenty, you know, two thousand eight and twenty twelve. And then they, there was a shift in the general election, with a lot of these people voting for Donald Trump. And I think part of the reason that um, we saw that dynamic is that there was a lot of uh, decline here for the past 35, maybe 40 years of just where you have lots of families and lots of communities sort of fitting right into that narrative line that folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are talking about, this that the American economy isn't working for families like it used to, and that the sort of attainment of middle class, um, uh, you know, status in America um, is, is something that is, is sort of eluding lots of, you know, regular people in this yeah. country. So I think that, like, it's going to be interesting to see how those people sort of pitch um, to voters um, in, in places like, uh, well, we're obviously we're in Michigan, but I think they're going to be speaking directly to, to communities in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, yeah. these kind of states where, um, you know, you have, you know, lots of decline and lots of, you know, um, sort of hand-wringing over whether or not it's going to be, you know, the, the Democratic Party is going to be, you know, have the answers um, for people who, who want to, you know, see progress. Yeah. Well, you, uh, one of the things that you mentioned is uh, the, the way they'll deal with uh, economic issues. So what are some of the uh, other big issues that you anticipate coming up at tonight's debate? You know, I think that, you know, one of the things I'm looking for is, is really a, a, the difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage. I spoke with a couple of, of, of Warren aides last night, and basically what came through to me is that they're going to be really talking. Um, she's going to really try to separate herself here and, and distinguish herself on the detail of her policy proposals. Um, you know, I think Bernie 
Sanders is talking a lot about the same issues, especially related to the economy, healthcare, Medicare for all. He's really kind of sharpened his elbows on this idea of a Medicare for all deal for America. We saw someone like Kamala Harris this week come out with her version of that. He was very, I think, pointedly um, trying to, um, you know, characterize his plan as a true Medicare for all plan. So I think healthcare is going to be a big one. Um, I think the way that um, those two candidates sort of distinguish themselves and present themselves to the American people is going to be interesting. And I think um, Pete Buttigieg is someone who um, is, is also sort of on an upward trajectory and, and whether or not he's able to, to break through on the stage with, you know, those two veterans um, is going to be interesting. Mm. And Darren, you bring up Pete Buttigieg, and this week has been a week of talking about Trump's racism with his tweets about Baltimore, which even continued mm-hmm. last night and into this morning. But Pete Buttigieg himself has faced his own backlash around race uh, tied to the South Bend, Indiana police shooting. How do you think that candidate's going to handle race when it comes up? And then how are the other, other candidates going to pile on to Trump's racism? Yeah, you know, at the time that since the first debate, which is obviously an introduction, um, and it's a it's a way to introduce yourself to American people. In the time since then, he's actually released a plan, um, really a sort of a detailed, multi-pronged uh, plan for African Americans. He, he he named it after uh, Frederick Douglass, who he really admires, and I think that. You know, Mayor Pete has been very thoughtful on matters of race. It's going to be interesting. This is obviously an all-white panel this tonight, and it's going to be interesting to see how these candidates sort of um, try to distinguish themselves on this matter, especially in light of Trump. You know, look, I think also what we have to remember is that, you know, what the president is doing is something that the Democratic Party has been talking about for a while in terms of how to deal with it. Do you, do you lean into uh, sort of a criticism of the president? And do you try to make him the point of this thing, or do you, or, or do you try to make the policy and the ideas the 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 big part of this? And I think, you know, Mayor Pete is right in that sort of nexus of whether or not of of how he needs to be doing this. Obviously, he's you know reaching for a younger crowd, um, college students. Um, you know, older millennials, younger millennials, but he's also, I think, um, trying to position himself as someone who can be competitive, right? In, in, in places like Pennsylvania, places like Michigan, frankly. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that he's also got this, you know, plan out that, um, he's been talking a lot about, but, you know, this whole thing with Donald Trump, um, is something that I think Democrats are going to have to deal yeah. with. And it's something that I think in, in a lot of ways is going to be up to CNN, right. And the, and the people who are on that, um, moderating stage in terms of what they say and what they bring. And I know someone like Don Lemon, right. will will yeah. be, you know, front and center, but, um, yeah. I, I think it's going to be a, a very, very interesting night. And I want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned. Um, Here's a tweet quoting the New York Times. While all 10 candidates debating on Tuesday are white, Wednesday's debate will feature five people of color. Um, What do you think uh, is the impact of the lack of diversity uh, on tonight's stage? You know, I think it's going to give someone a chance to stand out, right? Um, You know, one of the, the, the features of the campaign in the last few weeks has been you know, Kirsten Gillibrand had this moment where she was able to talk to a voter about how racism functions and, and, and particularly how white privilege functions, right? And like that has been something that she sort of 
has been able to hang her hat on um, as a senator coming from New York and talking about sort of the progression of her views on race. Um, and so obviously she's, you know, it's going to be a challenge, I think, for people to um, begin to, you know, really lean into these issues. But I think that it's something that voters are looking for. And it's not just black voters it's, it's or people of color. It's I think it's young um, millennials as well and sort of trying to look for the type of message that is going to um, not only, you know, hit back at some of the president's racism, but is going to talk about a vision for the country, sort of a way forward that um, centers this issue, but also I think, you know, just creates a sense that there's going to be yeah. opportunity and that there's going to be um, a, a better time. I can't stress enough, I think, with like the hunger for a vision of the country um, after this president that people want to hear and they want to hear um they want to hear veracity. They want to hear historical veracity. And they, I think, are, are looking for someone who is going to um, stand out and, and really be, I think, like a, a, a sort of a partner um, with communities of color. But it's going to be interesting, I think, how that is, is sort of that dynamic um, it, it plays out on stage. For sure, Darren. Darren, that was great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And sorry we're running out of time there, but we will be following your reporting live tonight uh, from the DNC debate, and we will be live tweeting it here from Buzzfeed We sure HQ. will. So, Darren, good luck. Thanks, guys. All right, thank you so much. Well, here's a tweet from Carlos Balestros. Holy shit, suburban families in Chicago are giving up guardianship of their kids so that they can turn down, turn in turn declare financial independence and get scholarship and financial aid money from colleges and universities earmarked for poor kids. ProPublica Illinois reporter Jody Cohen broke the story. She tweeted, families are giving up custody of their kids so the students can get financial aid. We found dozens of examples in the Chicago suburbs and Jody joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so who are these parents giving up guardianship and how are they doing this? So the parents that we found, which is about four dozen who live in a north suburb of um, Chicago in, in Lake County, which is really one of the really affluent counties in Illinois. And they are, you know, professionals. There's doctors, lawyers, there's real estate agents, insurance agents, you know, um, two parents, they are, what they're doing is they're going to Illinois court and they are petitioning for guardianship changes for their children. So they are giving up the parental rights to their children, typically when they're 17 or right before they turn 18 to somebody else. The children are agreeing. And then what happens is when you file for federal um, financial aid and state aid, when you file your FAFSA paperwork, the, the student at that point can mark on the form that they are, in, they are in legal guardianship, and that allows them to file as an independent, meaning they do not have to um, base their financial aid on their parents' money. Mm. And Jody, the first line of your story, uh, you get a quote from an administrator who says that this is a scam. So I'm wanting yeah. to know, how does this exactly shortchange students uh, who are engaging in this behavior if it is legal? How does it shortchange them or how does it shortchange others who really need it? Others I mean, the thing is, there's only a limited pool of federal aid, state aid, university aid. And if this money is going to students who do not otherwise qualify for it, it is not going to students who really need it. 
For example, in Illinois, there's a grant called the Monetary Award Program Grant. It goes to the um, to students who have financial need. There are always thousands and thousands of more students who apply than there is money. Last year, there were 82,000 eligible students who did not get it because the money ran out. That's Those are the people who are suffering. Wow, that is incredible. That so, is really yeah, incredible. yeah. So how are administrators uh, now evaluating uh, these kinds of applications to make sure that uh, parents and potential students aren't exploiting uh, the system? So I spoke most to the University of Illinois. I mean, they were the first place to ask because of where the students were coming from. And these are students, a lot of them go to the University of Illinois. It's you know, the most prestigious public school in, in Illinois. And so I called them um, first and they had um, been alerted to this about a year ago. And, and I can tell you how it happened. They sent a notice of financial aid to one of the high school counselors who took a look at it and said, why is this student getting a full ride to University of Illinois? Like, I've never even heard of this scholarship. And he looked it up and he saw that it's for low-income students. And he called the U of I admissions director and said, something's off here. So now U of I is taking a look really closely at financial aid applications filed by students who mark <coughs> they're in a legal guardianship. And if they have suspicions, they are then following up with a whole lot of questions. Like, where does the student live? Who does the student live with? Who pays their cell phone bill? Who pays their health insurance? And after we broke the story yesterday, we reached out to some other universities. And now, um, and we will continue to do so. And I'd love to hear from other university admissions directors if they are also taking a closer look at financial aid applications. Oh. All right. Well, uh, we will definitely keep an eye on this story. Always fascinated by these college yes. uh, scams. Yes, and Jody, thank uh, you so much for this reporting. Controversial really stories. Incredible. Yeah. Jody, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we go, everyone, we want to hit on a story impacting, oh, 100 million credit card applicants. Zach Whitaker tweeted, wow, Capital One discloses massive data breach, 100 million in U.S., 6 million in Canada, one person in FBI custody, credit files, applications, the lot. Hard to see this as anything other than Equifax 2.0. Andrew tweeted, the Capital One hacker getting into my account and seeing my card is 12 cents away from its limit. Woo. Yeah, this is incredible. And everyone, since we have your attention here, know that when you are applying for a credit card, you're giving up a lot of valuable information that can be used against you to create other loan opportunities for you, mortgages, all this other stuff. So this is a very big deal because all of your personal information is out there in the world and you should be following this very closely because it can have tremendous impact that is irreversible. Indeed, and, and just a, a note on this story is that uh, the hacker is allegedly a 33-year-old woman um, and she apparently uh, was arrested yesterday um, by yes. the FBI. And just to uh, your point, the information contained in these applications was highly personal, and somebody can get that information and do a lot of nefarious things with it. It's so. quite crazy. Yep. Well, moving on, coming up, we are talking to Amy McGrath, a Democrat challenging Mitch McConnell for Senate. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Stay tuned. Oh, welcome back, Twitter. It's time for Fire Treats before we get on to our chat with Amy McGrath. Ooh. We want to bring you some fire, some heat, some humor before Ooh. we start talking about politics again. Well, here you go, Alex. I'll let you start us All off. All right. Dwayne, you tweeted, me waving goodbye to the stranger I unknowingly gave wrong directions to. 
that. So everyone knows I just Oops. moved to New York, and people always come up to me and say, is 8th Avenue this way? I'm like, yeah, girl, it's that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that way. Okay. And I'm like, what is 8th sure. Avenue? <laughs> don't ask Zach for directions is the moral of the yes, story. don't ask me anything. Well, low life, you tweet it. From now on, I'm telling Jobs I was the general manager at Toys R Us. Who the fuck they gonna call? Who the fuck <laughs> they gonna call? That's no a, one? That's Nobody a, to call. That's a move. Pl- uh, put places that you used to work as places uh, so they can't call you for reference. I have a few of those. <clears throat> <clears throat> Won't say names. <laughs> All right, you tweeted. If I had a stalker, they would be so bored. Like, bitch, you've been in bed all day. Are you ever going to leave your house? Do you have any plans? No. 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 My stalker would be like, girl, you just go to work (laughs) in the gym and that's it. Work, And don't have a man. (laughs) 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 Well, Ushermeister, you tweet it. Being a pet owner is like being a sugar daddy. You waste all of your money on keeping them happy, and the only thing they do is look cute and give you attention sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, and, sometimes. And you still gotta clean up after them. And sometimes they scratch you. It's uh, very rude. It's so, too yeah. much. All right. Well, ready, ready for the tweet of the day? Yes. Okay. Tweet of the day comes from The Deprives. Can't wait until I'm financially stable enough to afford who I really am. Boop. And to which I say, um, the woman I really am is somewhere in an alternate timeline wearing Gucci sweaters. Yes, and living know? on a yacht, and an island. Yacht. There you go. That has a lot of sugar babies, but it doesn't matter because I'm well. <laughs> well, coming up, Sylvia is sitting down with Loretta Devine. But up next, we are going live from the district with Amy McGrath. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Joining us today is Amy McGrath, retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel and 2020 Democratic candidate for one of Kentucky's Senate seats. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you uh, on this bright and early Tuesday, Amy. Um, Well, let's start off with a tweet from you. You write, I'm running to replace Mitch McConnell in the U.S. Senate. Everything that's wrong with Washington had to start somewhere. It started with him. With your help, we can defeat Mitch and defend democracy. So, Amy, what inspired inspired you to run in this cycle specifically? Well, for me, it all it all comes back to leadership, and that we need better leaders in this country. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell is somebody who epitomizes everything that is wrong with our system: the obstruction, um, the fact that he's not even securing our elections right now, uh, all of those things. And I'm somebody who has served my country for 24 years in the United States military. And I just, you know, I took a step back like many Americans and said, hey, we, we got to do better and I'm going to do my part. And that's that's why I'm running. Mm. And Amy, you've ran before in Kentucky, uh, but this year, you know, you're running against Mitch McConnell, who has a notorious reelection campaign group and strategy. So let us know, how do you plan on dealing with that specific issue as you look forward? Well, you know, in Kentucky, many Kentuckians, um, they're tired of business as usual. They are tired of the system not working. So, I mean, we, we're in a state where we have the highest cancer rates in the country. We have some of the lowest wages in the country. Um, we have some of the highest prescription drug prices in terms of per capita, how much people pay for that. And none of that stuff, you know, for what everyday Kentuckians want to get done is getting done under Mitch McConnell. And so, you know, I feel like, um, this is a different cycle because people are so angry at at the system, frankly. And I'm somebody that didn't grow up with the within the system. I'm somebody who served the country. I didn't grow up as I was an independent for 12 years. My husband's Republican. I'm a Democrat. I mean, we're we're just Americans, and we want to do the things that make our country better and make Kentucky better. And that's kind of the opposite of Mitch McConnell, who is you know really bought off by special interests and as you know doesn't 
doesn't really understand what everyday Kentuckians go through. Mm. And Amy, you know, you brought up the fact that your partner is a, Dem- is a Republican and you are a Democrat and that we do have a lot of bipartisanship happening across this country, but this, ex- but this issue is not letting anything get done. So how do you expect to do anything when we feel so polarized in this nation right now? Well, the first step is to get rid of Mitch McConnell because there's a lot of part- bipartisan things that um, you know we all need and know we want. Just, just a, a perfect example of this past week with election security. You know, even the Senate Intelligence Committee is saying, hey, our, our, our elections are, are, are vulnerable. And, you know, even uh, folks like or countries like North Korea and um, Iran are looking at cyber attacking us. So we need to stand up. And it's Mitch McConnell is stopping all of this right now. I mean, he's just the purest form of obstructionism you can think of. And, you know, that's something that that if you can just get rid of him, it would go a long way to getting our country back on track. All right. Well, you raised uh, two and a half million dollars on your first day after announcing your Senate bid. Why do you think you got uh, so much support so quickly? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, You know, I think it's folks are really excited to see somebody take on Senator McConnell around the country and in Kentucky. Um, I think it's also just just shows you how how unpopular he is. You know, even in Kentucky, he's not really well liked. So, I mean, I feel like this is just an example of that. That's the reason. Well, I want to get to another tweet from you earlier this month. I was asked earlier today about Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and I answered based upon his qualifications to be on the Supreme Court. But upon further reflection and further understanding of his record, I would have voted no. I know I disappointed many today with my initial answer on how I would have voted on Brett Kavanaugh. I will make mistakes and always own up to them. The priority is defeating Mitch McConnell. And now you said after giving your initial answer um, that it felt like it wasn't the right one. So what in your gut made you change course? Well, when I answered that on the second day of my campaign, I was talking uh, to a newspaper um, a reporter and he had asked me a question that had never been asked before. And, I, you know, in the Marine, I was a Marine Corps officer. And the first thing that you look at is basic qualifications for the job. So that was when I answered that about Justice Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh. And so but again, I, I made a mistake. I, I should have looked at the broader picture. I should have looked, you know, when I answered that question, I should have looked at it, you know, as a sitting senator, I'm going to look at. Uh, everything, including, you know, Judge Kavanaugh's views on things like workers' rights, on things like uh, women's reproductive rights, on things that I really care about, like money and politics. And so I knew that answer was not, uh, was something I needed to correct. And I did that right away in the most professional manner. Yeah, and just given, uh, you know, how uh, much energy, I think, came out and, um, and and just how the Kavanaugh confirmation made so many people uh, feel to have to watch that. Um, do you have a sense of how that particular misstep has impacted your campaign? I don't think it's really impacted it at all. And, you know, this this whole thing is a function of Mitch McConnell. I mean, first of all, if he wouldn't have rammed through that nomination in in the uh, with all of the stuff that was going on with Dr. Ford uh, and those very serious allegations against Justice Kavanaugh, I think, you know, that's what made this so emotional to begin with. And then if you take it a step back even further, you know, it's Mitch McConnell that put us in this place to begin with when he ripped up the Constitution, essentially, and would not allow a, even a vote on a sitting president's legitimate nominee in Merrick Garland. 
Um, so, I mean, to me, it's just a part of, the, of all of why Mitch McConnell has to go. Mm. And Amy, I would love to ask you about a breaking news item that's coming up that we're getting tweets about. Um, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky has just stated to the press that he's, I'm, he says, I'm willing to contribute to buy her a ticket to visit Somalia when referring to uh, Senator Ilhan Omar. Omar. Um, And he says she can look and maybe learn a little about that disaster that is Somalia. After she's visited Somalia, she might come back and appreciate America more. So I'd love to know, how are you planning to handle the rampant xenophobia happening in D.C. and also within your own state with the elected officials that are most famous there? Well, you know, to me, it's about leadership. And in the military, you work with people from all walks of life who are Americans, um, some of whom are immigrants who are trying to be Americans, and we all wear the uniform together um, of the United States Marines. Uh, they come from different walks of life, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And, you know, I, I approach this the way I would approach it as a Marine Corps officer, is that you treat everybody with respect, and we are all Americans, and that is what makes this country the most awesome country in the world. Um, and that, that's how I approach it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, before you go, we got to ask you this. Are you watching the Democratic debate tonight? And uh, what are you looking for? <laughs> well, um, I have three small children. So um, after I put them to bed and if all goes well, because that's sort of uh, an interesting time every night putting them to bed, uh, I plan on my husband and I both plan on watching the, the Democratic debates. And, you know, I'm just looking to see just like many Americans, you know, I'm, I haven't decided you know, which candidate I, I like. I want to see how their answers are. I want to see what, you know, what they bring to the table. Mm, what they bring to the table, which I'm sure is a lot because there's a lot of them. Well, Amy, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, great to see you. All right. Well, up next, Sylvia sits down with the iconic actress Loretta Devine. So stay tuned for that. Sitting down with Loretta Devine, Emmy-winning actor and star of the comedy Family Reunion on Netflix. Hey! Hi! How are you? Good. I'm Good. so excited to be sitting down with you. <laughs> Such a fan. I've watched you all my life. Okay. So I'm very excited to talk about your new work. So this new show was about a retired football player who's who moves in with his parents. Right. Is how do you is that a premise you would relate you can relate to? Like, is that something you feel like you would let your child do? Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's coming back home nowadays, huh? Yeah. I, well, this is something that, that that the character, Amelia, she really wants. They, they've been living in Seattle, Washington. And uh, this is Columbus, Georgia, that they're coming back home to down south, where all their family is. And she's so glad to have her son home. And he's back with his new wife. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're four kids. Right. And so it's not just him coming home. It's, it's like... family. It's everybody. They come for the come for the family reunion and never leaves. And so it's just really an excitement for everybody. I think she loves having him home. They're going to look for their own house, but initially when they come back, they try to settle in, you know, yeah, with her family sure. until they can get settled. Yeah, got it. Mm-hmm. And um, in the show, you and your daughter-in-law kind of have you kind of give her a hard time. Oh. What is your relationship like with Tia Mowry in real life? Because that's oh, she my plays your daughter-in-law. God. Oh. <laughs> I, I am so in love with Tia. I mean, she, uh, 
There is no word that can really describe this young lady. She is just so sweet, such a great heart, uh, such a fabulous mother and, and, and wife. I just, I just, I was saying her mom must be so proud of her and can, an actress. When you see her work, I mean, we have stuff that make people belly laugh in this show. <laughs> so, uh, and there's so many different things happening. The kids are so talented. Um, the young man that plays my son, uh, Anthony Alabi, he mm-hmm. is just gorgeous. I mean, when you when you, if you get a chance to see him, I in mean, the he is he is gorgeous. <laughs> I don't know if y'all seen. And I mean, everybody in the show sings, dances, acts. These are stories that are told by all black writers. Yes. Most of the directors were black. And, and of course, the, the actors and all of the people on the crew that were behind the set, there were all different types of people. But this is primarily our view of our family and ourselves. And it's a family show. You can sit around with your family and watch it and have a good time. I'm so proud of the show. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's such an accomplishment for a Netflix show, especially to have black, all black cast and and crew. Right. And even, I think the all-black writer's room is such important when you're writing a story about a black family. Exactly, And yes. I think it translates. And you I can think, see the difference. Thank you, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And my grandbaby told me she loves it, so I'm on point. You all know? right, well, that's, all, that's all you needed then. <laughs> exactly. Um, one of your first acting jobs that people really knew you for was when you were on Dreamgirls. Oh, God, yes. And how does it feel for when it was on Broadway? And how, do you, how does it feel for that? Did you think that that would be a uh, role that would carry so far and be such a, become such a beloved. Uh, I, you know, role I, for I know there's no way to, there's absolutely no way to know that something would last your entire lifetime. And sometimes <laughs> I go, God, if I'd known this show was going to be around this long, I don't know if I'd have done it. Yeah. <laughs> because of the I- impact of it, you know, you, 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 but we stay in touch and we get a chance to do so many other things because that's one of the things we did. Uh, Shirley, Ralph mm-hmm. and Jennifer Holiday, and myself. And so, uh, I'm just amazed that it's become like a legendary show and it, and everybody from Beyonce on back, yes. you know, has been a part of it. Yes. Yeah. It's become, it's a cultural mainstay and I love, yes, but yes, that's, yeah, that's so funny. It. 40 years is, Oh, God, yes, it goes fast. (laughs) (laughs) And you've starred in so many shows and films over that time. Is there any, what kind of, is there like a character or script that you haven't played yet that you would like to do next? You know, when I first started out, I always wanted to do romantic comedies, and I don't think I've ever gotten a chance to really do that, but that was something I always dreamed of doing. But I'm sort of like a character actress, you know? Yeah. Most of the stuff I've ever done has been like in an ensemble kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, and, and because of that, I've gotten a chance to work and do a lot of different kinds of things. Because yes. when you get pigeonholed for one particular character, people it's hard for people to see you doing something else. So I've been able to do so many different things, and I'm, I feel lucky for that. Yeah. And speaking of all your different roles, I want to, I'm such a big fan of your work that I'm going to read you five of my favorite characters of yours. And I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I say it. Oh God! About that role or that movie experience, whatever comes to mind. There's no wrong. There's no wrong answer. Okay. Okay. So my first is Gloria from Waiting to Exhale. Thank you for telling me what it is. Okay, (laughs) great. Okay, go go go. Okay, so what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Gloria from Waiting to Exhale? Gregory Hines. Oh (laughs) yes, RIP to a legend. Legend. Yes. Yes. Um, Madea Whitfield on This Christmas. 
Oh my God, my children on that show, all of them were just like Isris became, he's a legend now himself. Uh, uh, Regina, Regina King, King, Cheryl Leal. Uh, Lauren oh, London. Laura London, I mean, uh, uh, Columbus Short. It was just such an incredible, and there had at that time, there hadn't been a movie like that. No. And so it's a classic too. It's People classic. watch it every Christmas, so yeah. No, I didn't know my mother, it's not Christmas unless she finds this Christmas somewhere. She's like, Where, who's playing it? Where can I find it? She will make us go find it on Amazon and stream it. She doesn't care. That movie, because we don't have a lot of black holiday movies like that. Uh, and, and you I know, think. Will Packard, who is doing all of the new stuff now, yes. Girl Trip, that was one of his movies this Christmas. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so he was already on flick. A fleek. A fleek. Oh, a fleek. Okay, okay. He was okay. already. <laughs> Yes, okay. <laughs> yes, he was. He was. We've been in the game for a while, y'all. He's been in the world for a while. Okay. Um, Mrs. Taylor in Jumping the Broom. Oh, everybody hated her. Wasn't she, was, she something? She was spicy. Oh, she loved her baby. She, she loved her baby. Her. That Angela Bassett, ain't she something she's acting all uppity in the movie? I was like, oh. <laughs> I love seeing you guys play opposite of each other in that way, though, from Wayne to Exhale to Jumping the Broom. Yeah. I thought that was like a fun, like, not oh. really fast forward, but in an alternate world, fast forward. Oh, no, we work together a lot. She's so much. an incredible yeah. person. She really, really is. And a talent uh, off the chain. For sure. Um, Cynthia Carmichael in The Carmichael Show. Oh my God, that was so much fun. No one knows. I acted in Dreamgirls with David Allen Greer mm -hmm. back in the day. So that means we've spanned time for 40 years of time. And for us to get a chance to play against each other was really great. He thinks I think he's crazy. And I think he is. <laughs> and he is correct. She does think she's crazy. Yes, yes he is. <laughs> and Jared Carmichael is such a talent too. And um, that was one of the first places we saw Tiffany Jawad. Haddish. Yes, Jawad. Who blew up after. Oh my God, isn't she fabulous? She, I mean, this is her time, her day. I'm always so excited to see that she's getting new and exciting things. And whenever I see her, I've seen her, I had like a couple of events, like the Dodger game. They had like a gala and she was there. We got a chance to spend a little time. But she's now so busy, you know. Yeah. She's like, come on, keep up, keep up, keep up. And that's what happens when you first start and you're discovered and people love you. So she's having her best life. Yeah. I could say that for her. And my final favorite character, which is a character actor. And to me, I had never seen you in a role like this. Uh -huh. And it is Cece from I Being Mary Jane. Did you know where I was going? Because Cece was a Cece. Girl, I got some <laughs> stuff coming up. You're going to be shocked to death. But Cece, I know Ooh. she was on. Yeah, Cece was good. I, I, I sh when I watch my when I watch it myself, I can't believe that that's me doing that. Do you <laughs> and, um, when I was doing Love Is, uh, the young lady that played the wife, uh, God, Tiffany, I think her name was Tiffany too, Tiffany Black. Mm -hmm. She said, "I just hate you. I hated you the whole time. I hated you." <laughs> I said, "Come on!" I was playing. She said, "No, I just hated you." That, I but that's how you Cece, know you did a good job. Yeah, but I thought Cece was on point. I mean, I really thought that people should really love her. She was a woman with a cause. <laughs> she was the scammer though. <laughs> <laughs> she had she was trying to get her library together for the children. You know she had purpose. She was low key low. A lot, people, I know, a lot of people don't even know they scamming. They're just trying to get their thing off, you know? So I love your defensive CC. <laughs> 
I thought, especially that last episode when she went off on Gabriel, you know I enjoyed Gary, that. Yes, it was I good. I enjoyed that so much. Gabby was like, I'll be glad when she get Go off, off the show. Get off of the show. <laughs> and that's another one with you and Richard Roundtree in it. Yeah, so it's you know, a, we the, never did a scene, scene together, though. Yeah, though. yeah. We never did anything together. But now you guys are. Now we're doing it and on pe- Family Reunion. <laughs> and you guys can catch all 10 episodes of Family Reunion Season 1 streaming now on Netflix. Up next, more AM to DM. Thank you so much. Here's a tweet from Micah. Unless you are experiencing the same chronic illness as someone, you are not entitled to tell them what they should and shouldn't feel. And even then, their body, their rules. It's not rocket science. Respecting that shouldn't even be hard. And joining me now to talk about dealing with chronic illness is Nika Chopra, host of Naturally Beautiful and creator of Chronicon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be Yes, yes. <laughs> so in case folks aren't familiar with yes. your work, um, how did chronic illness, how has it impacted your life? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with psoriasis, which is an autoimmune condition and a skin condition. And I was diagnosed with that at 10 years old, so almost like 30 years ago. (laughs) And I also got psoriatic arthritis at the age of 19 and was kind of unable to walk without severe pain for about seven years of my first seven years of that diagnosis. So it's had a huge impact on my life. Yeah, and why did you want to start creating content uh, around your experience? I wanted to start creating content around the experience, honestly, because I felt like I couldn't not anymore. Mm. I had been doing stuff in the self-love, wellness space for a while, and that had been nice, but it also felt like it was only reaching the surface. It didn't feel like it was really going as deep as I wanted it to. And that was a huge issue for me, considering I had been through so much in my life, and I knew that I wasn't the only one. I knew I wasn't special. There are millions and millions of people out there going through similar things, so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that note, it it, it seems like you mentioned the millions and millions of people. There are so many people who are living with uh, chronic illness, and yet it seems so invisible. I know. Well, that was a huge part of it because when I was starting to sort of talk about it a little bit more, I started to do some research. And the National Health Council says there will be 157 million people that will have a chronic illness in this country by 2020 which is like in five months. And so when I started to think about it, because it is so isolating and it can feel like, oh, I'm the only one. How big of a deal could this really be? And then I read that statistic and I started having personal conversations with people and people would be like, oh, I have PCOS. Oh, my grandmother has MS. Oh, you know, all these different things. I started to really see that although it feels very isolating, I am not alone by any means. Yeah, how has building that community and, uh, you know, finding that sense that you are not alone helped you uh, cope with it? Yeah, it's helped me so much. I mean, for, for one, I think that it helps in this whole world where social media and media in general can feel a little bit like, you know, there's all this perfectionism happening. And it really helped me to take that away from the conversation and say, we can be using media as you do every day in a positive way. And it also helped me feel like my my condition and everything that I had been through in my life had a bigger purpose than just suffering. And it wasn't just about me, it was about others. Mm. Well, I wanna read a tweet from Sarah who says, some people manage their chronic illness with green smoothies and Pilates. I manage mine with sarcasm and a 
dark sense of humor. You know, whatever works for you. Um, do you have any strategies you use to make sure um, that you're taking care of yourself? Yeah, well, you Sarah's a girl after my own heart. I totally, <laughs> I totally am with you on that. Like, yeah, sometimes a green smoothie helps, and then sometimes you're just like, I need to shout expletives at, you know, Queer Eye and just watch that for the whole weekend and not... Think about anything. Yeah, I think the biggest thing when it comes to taking care of yourself, whether you have a chronic illness or not, but especially when people have a chronic illness and they're getting fed so many different messages, you should try this doctor, you should do this thing, take this supplement, is to do the work to truly know what your baseline needs are, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel more drained, what makes you feel more alive, how much rest do you need? Those sound like really simple things, But I can't tell you how many times people are in fight or flight because their bodies are breaking down and then they start to just try to get all of this information because they're in survival. And it just ends up being on top of, you know, issues that they have that they haven't really understood yet. So if we could start there, that makes a huge difference. Then when someone tells you, oh, you should eat this drink this celery juice. I mean, if one more person tells me to drink (laughs) celery juice, you know, but I know because I've gotten my body tested and I've worked with doctors and I've done the work, I'm allergic to celery. So I'm not going to be drinking. That's not going to help you. Yeah. So doing that initial work, although it might sound kind of basic, it's actually incredibly important. Yeah, it, it seems like, uh, you know, that kind of advice just really points to um, some of the generalizations that the wellness industry can make. So um, where, uh, you know, has the wellness industry done enough to be inclusive of people living with chronic illness? No. Okay. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Um, I could go off about the wellness industry. And I've been, a, you know, a person having a conversation and creating content in that industry for 10 years now. But what I realized after the last, after probably the first eight years, I think it finally got through to me that it's for able-bodied, mostly white people. Mm-hmm. And I, I am not either of those things. And I was just like, who's talking to the woman who has MS, who can't walk, who can't get out of bed, who can't do the downward dog? I mean, I can't even, I can't bend my wrist and bend my toes from arthritis. You know, who's talking to me and actually making a space for me in that conversation? And I felt like it was just perpetuating a lot of these one type of person one type of economic status, one type of, you know, accessibility, and that's not inclusive (laughs) at all. That doesn't even start to scratch the surface of what we all are really going through. Mm, It doesn't start to scratch the surface. Um, Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we've got to leave it there. But Nitika, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Chronicon is October 28th, 2019 in New York City. Up next, you'll see Zach's conversation with Allie Brooke. Welcome back, Harmonizers. This is The mm. Sit Down, and I'm so excited to be joined by Allie Brooke. Hi. It looks incredible. Thank you. And by the way, fun fact, America, she smells amazing, and there's a makeup trip trick with Vaseline. Thank you very much. Shout out to my makeup artist, it's, Christina. She she did a concoction. I'm, I'm glad I smell nice. It's like the best compliment. Allie tried to play me and say, oh, I just smell like this naturally. And I was yeah, like, girl, I you exactly are incredible, I but I don't know if your pheromones <laughs> are that strong, at least for me as a gay man. Maybe they are. Yeah. Maybe they are. I don't know. Just jokes, y'all, okay? Can I joke? Yes, you can joke just anytime. Well, let's jump right on into this. You have two singles out right now. Yes. Low Key and Lips Don't Lie, which we could not afford to play before the show. <gasps> wow. When can we Expect a label. <laughs> you yell at them. So when can we expect a full album or EP? Um, so I'm working on it right now, and I'm so excited because there's so much 
happening and going mm-hmm. on. A lot of different records that I'm totally in love with. Guys, I just can't wait for y'all to hear. <laughs> but I gotta be patient. Um, I'm still aiming for the fall, but not sure mm-hmm. if that's gonna <laughs> happen after all. Because it's still, still, uh, how do you say, building and yes. still working on it. You're working on it. Yeah. You're getting there, but there's one coming. We just gotta wait and be, be patient. Yeah. Okay, I will be patient. So you've talked about Justin Timberlake, J-Lo, and yeah. Selena uh, I almost said Selena Gomez, my God. Selena. Too, Selena Gomez is great too, but Selena being influences for you. How have you pulled from those artists to create the Ali Brooke sound? Mm. Um, well, all of those artists, I mean, I-, I love how they're they're just themselves and I love how they're they're entertainers in their own right, you know? And I, I kind of I try to pull inspiration from from each and every artist, you know, like for my music videos. Um, well, I had well, I had two, but <laughs> that's <laughs> plural. That music videos see, is plural, right? So yeah, um, and just through through my whole vibe. I mm-hmm. mean, through my music, you can kind of hear that I have a little bit of Latin influence. Yeah. You know, J Lo and Selena, yes, and a lot of the different Latin artists, Claudia Stefan, mm-hmm. um, that I have uh, been inspired by. And then you also have that kind of like pop urban sound mm-hmm. like you know Justin there's just so many different ways that I pull from them but I also make mm-hmm. it my own you know I mm-hmm. feel like I'm I'm a what I want to portray is that I'm like a, a fun sultry flirty kind of artist mm-hmm. and so far you're able to see that with my music mm, and I love that and you're now getting able to kind of show this own version of yourself outside the group how have things changed since you left Fifth Harmony for you as a solo artist yeah well we um we all I mean it's kind of decided that, you know, okay, we're, we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, go on hiatus, take a break or whatever. Um, but it's been so, like, honestly, it's been night and day for me. And really? Night and day, you know, being able to really create the music that I want to create and actually have that come to life. Like, making all that happen was was a journey, boo. Yeah. Like, I had to find my, my team. I had to find the right people to surround myself with, you know, because mm-hmm. that... I feel like the people around you really help to shape you and mm-hmm. define you. So once I found them, it was like, okay, go, go, mm-hmm. go in the studio. And I finally found Low Key and mm-hmm. Lips Don't Lie. And those are representative of who I am as an artist. And um, life's been crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm on a, a radio summer tour. I'm on a promo tour. I'm going to start another one soon. And um, I was just actually on Kelly and Ryan earlier Amazing. this week. and. So much has happened. So I feel like life's really fast mm-hmm. paced and it's really awesome because I feel like people are getting to see me, yeah. like see Allie, like what she can do, what she's all about, yes. my music, my voice, how I represent myself. Mm-hmm. And that's the coolest part. Yeah. And what was it like, you know, as an artist who'd been part of a group looking down at this new chapter and thinking, wow, I got to build a team. I got to make my own sound, got to make my own music. What was going through your mind thinking of such a big job next? Um, at first, it was kind of like, a little overwhelming and a little scary because it was like, okay, you know, I got to reach out to a bunch of people and I got to <laughs> find these so-called, you know, people in the yes. team that that I want. And, you know, like I'm very, I'm very particular and I'm very particular with my vision and what I want for my music. And I have to have someone who aligns with that. And thank God, like I found those people. And once that happened, it was just like, whoosh, like everything changed. So I think that was um, at first, mm-hmm. like I said, kind of, Kind of scary, you know, because it's like, okay, you know, who's going to be my yeah. my partner? <laughs> who's going to be there for me? Yeah. So you now have established a team. You're working on new music yes. and a new album or EP. We don't know. But you also have a memoir coming out called Finding Your Harmony. Yeah. When do you, what do you think fans will be surprised to find out after they read this book? Mm. Well, I'm still working on it right mm-hmm. now. So um, I'm still adding so much. I mean, I'm adding things daily because... Yep. 
so much in my life has, has happened and, and changed and opportunities have come my way. Um, I think a lot of people will be, will be surprised to find that kind of how much I went through personally. And maybe people didn't know that like, oh, like I, I you know, I, I have anxiety. And a lot mm -hmm. of people kind of, my fans, I feel like see me as, you know, this like fun, yeah. sunshine, you know, like positive person. And I want to, I totally want to be known as that. But maybe people don't realize exactly what I've been through. Yeah. And they'll definitely be surprised at what has happened um, in my family, things I've never shared. Mm -hmm. And that's like, such an important mm -hmm. part and, yeah. and how my faith has really shaped me and why it shaped me, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I'm so excited about mm -hmm. that. And I'm so excited to, to be super vulnerable with people mm -hmm. and be honest and, and explain like, this was my, this was my life yeah. and this is my side through my, through my eyes. And um, I'm really excited for, there's, there's like a few stories in there that I've, again, never shared that I, I can't wait for people to hear because it changed my life. It yeah. changed me. Is it, and it's scaring you to share those stories? Um, it, a little bit because it's very personal mm -hmm. and it has to do with my, my family. Um, so a little bit because I'm really private, but at the same time, it's so beautiful that that's like, I, I'm very, very, very excited no. and honored. <laughs> Ali, thank you so much for being thank here. You, this boo. is so much fun. Thank and good luck with building new, the new album or EP. We will find out thank what it is you. soon. Yes. In the works. Thanks, guys. Oh thank you for gosh. having me. Thanks for being here. Well, don't go away, Twitter. We will be right back with more AM to DM up next. Welcome back. Yeehaw. Yeehaw, y'all. We stand. I love a Lil Nas X. Forever and always. Yeah, oh, yeah, and I love Lil Nas X too, but I just love a hat. But you also just love a hat? A little just accessory? Really enjoy a hat. Just a little, try a different look? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right. We, could, we, we are getting carried we away. We are getting really carried away. Well, this is Ad, as Alex has said, and we are ready to read your tweets from throughout this fantastic show today. So start off, we asked if Taylor Swift is any match for Lil Nas X. CJ tweeted, laugh my ass off. No. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Thank you. Amen, girl. Let's, and settled. That is settled. Yeah, over. All right. Sorry. Well, following our discussion about Capital One's data breach, Cini Martinez tweeted, does it even occur to these hackers to do a good deed and give everyone a zero dollar balance? Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Wipe out everyone's uh, credit debt. And seriously, wipe oh. out all the debt while you're on it. Like, wipe out my student loan debt. If you can hack that, like, you know. Give us a hand. Have a better focus. Be the Robin Hood of hackers. Oh, you know? Well, that's what we're sending out in the world today. <laughs> I'm joking. The FBI, we don't want anyone to hack. We're not involved in any way, shape, or form. All right. Well, thank you to our guests. Darren Sands, Jody Cohen, Nitika Chopra, Ali Brooke, Amy McGrath, and Loretta Devine. Woo. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. Yeehaw! Woo.